Welcome to Liz Collin Reports. On the podcast, a Minnesota mom shares her heartbreak over the loss of her son to addiction, her frustration with a facility she thought would keep him safe, and her message to other parents who think this couldn't possibly happen to them. Caleb Malik was 23 years old when he lost his battle to addiction a year and a half ago. He died of a fentanyl overdose inside a detox facility. His mom, Jill Adams, joins me today to talk about what she's uncovered and why she believes in part the state is to blame here. Jill, thank you so much for, for being on. Hi, Liz. Thank you. I know you've been through through so much uh, these last few years, uh, not only with your son's addiction and his death, but your battle for answers, which I think really deserves uh, quite a bit of attention. But I do want to start there, uh, you know, paint the picture, who, who Caleb was, where he grew up. He was, I know, a standout um, athlete, a gifted athlete for, from the very beginning with a very bright future, Jill. Yeah. Yeah. Caleb was born in Northfield, Minnesota in 1997. Um, he came out weighing nine, and, nine pounds and seven ounces. So he's always been my little big boy. So he was carrying a ball, basketball around with him as soon as he started walking, started sports in kindergarten with wrestling and t-ball, of course, and just on up through his school age years. And baseball was was really his sport, and he was planning to go to a Division I college in high school. Correct. Yep. Indiana State University offered him a four-year scholarship, yes. So he graduates from Northfield High School, I know, in 2016, but it was in high school that his addiction began. I, you know, I think it's important to talk about that, um, what's, what signs you were, you were noticing, and how this all started for him. Yeah, Caleb started when I know um, of it. He was pulled over um, by a police officer pulling out of Anytime Fitness without a seatbelt. And so they pulled him over for that, and they had, um, he could smell marijuana in his car. So that was like the first trouble that he had. So that was something he lost his letter for in his senior year for varsity baseball because he started playing varsity baseball, of course, in 10th grade. So he was told to go to outpatient treatment and prairie care in the cities, which he did. So um, he did an outpatient while he was still in high school and, um, when we went on to over to our final, um, because baseball, they signed a year earlier than other sports. So he actually was committed the year before. So um, the final and going into his senior year, of course, um, he we went over to our final visit or whatever, and they just dropped the scholarship. They I think they perhaps maybe knew what was um, talked about in Caleb's treatment center, me not knowing absolutely anything. But by senior year, he started Xanax. That was something that was a visible notice with him, change and stuff. And so he... And this was something he had a pre- prescription for, and this was to, to treat anxiety. No, it was something he was he was treating himself for anxiety. Okay. But he, he was heavily... Co- he was actually heavily scouted, Liz. We had um, the Kansas City Royals and the Cincinnati Reds come to his baseball game he they were there everybody was there with radars you know checking his you know hits and his you know pitches and all that sort of stuff so unbeknownst to me and not knowing he was medicating himself to handle the pressure that he was under so that was the beginning of the end to him because the Xanax was pretty hardcore there for a while by the time he went when uh, Indiana dropped him Iowa Western a community college that is known for major league baseball players to get pulled from um, offered him a scholarship and he went down there and made it a short period of time when it was very evident to the coach that Caleb struggled with drugs and he came home. 
you know now that this is a, a more common path, I think, than, than parents realize, but starting with pain meds, uh, with opioids leading to, to meth, to heroin and, and, and fentanyl, uh, sad, sadly, but it, it is kind of a, a typical path. It is very typical. And I knew this um, because Caleb was very open about everything. And he claimed that there were several baseball boys that did the Xanax route because it really helped with their performance. And it was not something that you could get tested for and fail like marijuana and stuff like that. So I think when he hit Xanax, he thought this is my perfect answer to all, you know, I won't fail a drug test. I won't, you know, that sort of stuff. But um he quickly went from the Xanax and then somebody gave him an Oxycontin. And then that's where he told me his whole entire life changed. Because he knew that this was kind he of the, the love of his this, life, this, if, if you will. Yeah, I mean, his words were, I felt like I kissed the face of Jesus. It was absolutely instant, instant in love mm-hmm. at first sight with the Oxy. So, Jill, this is what you're up against, and I know um, you've said b- before he's in and out of treatment six times. Six times. You really try everything uh, in the years that, that follow. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was less than five years from the time he graduated to the time he died, and so um, I'm counting the outpatient treatment as one of his attempts. He definitely knew that this was not the life he wanted to live, but when the Oxycontin entered, which quickly turned to heroin, in turn quickly turned to fentanyl, he would just tell me, I just don't see how I'm ever going to get out from underneath this addiction. It just is completely rules my brain. I can't, I have no dopamine. I can't supply myself with any enjoyment anymore because it's completely depleted in my brain. And so it's very violent for these uh, people that struggle with opioids with specifically fentanyl. Liz, the withdrawal is very violent, very violent. And so I just tell everybody, it's like watching the old movie, The Exorcism, watching them for days to get themselves into a mental place where they even can begin treatment. So it's a very tough, I don't even think we can begin to fathom how tough of an addiction that these folks that suffer with this have. And just horrific, uh, I'm sure to witness as, as a parent. Absolutely. Ultimately he ends up uh, then Jill at the Zumbro Valley health center in Rochester. Uh, This is in September of 2021 He's only there, I understand, for a total of nine hours. Uh, Just explain in in that time uh, what happened to him. He, um, well, he had just finished his sixth treatment, and then he went to a sober living facility um, in Rochester. And it was within the next day that the staff there had suspected the boys, um, not just Caleb, were kind of acting a little bit strange. They found an unused syringe and some stuff. So they actually drug tested a group of guys and Caleb tested positive for fentanyl and Percocet and THC, they said. So they offered him a ride to the detox center, and that's what they did. So they drove to the detox center, and he walked in the door at 3.30 in the morning and was carried out in a bed ba- in a body bag at 11. And what happened in that time has been my fight. Yeah, talk, talk about that fight because you've waited so long for answers, and you're making these calls to state agencies, to the governor's office uh, right away. This is a place you, you thought he'd be safe. It's a place that all I believe all the mothers and the fathers and, and the siblings believe that, you know, when they're in jail, they can still die from withdrawal. They When they're, you know, it is literally the only place that you believe in your heart you can get a good night's sleep and leave. you don't have to have your phone next to your bed because you know that they're safe. 
um, because it's a safe and secure environment with medical staff trained. Um, it's a detox center, so they're trained in medical emergencies, one would think, that would be surrounded with addiction and alcoholism. So it saddens me to even have to tell people that there is no safe place for our, our loved ones anymore because they can't even be safe in a medical facility when they're trying to better themselves. So I was confused with the, the policy is for DHS is there, there to be to a facility within 24 hours of a critical event. And they're to have a report of that said event within 30 days. And it took me over a year to finally get um, them to do an investigation. They began their investigation December of 2021, which was a year and two months after Caleb had passed. And in that time, I called on a weekly basis um, anybody that would listen to me. Um, I called uh, DHS. I called the ombudsman. I called the general of office inspection uh, uh, right up to Governor Walsh. It was a weekly thing I would do. I wanted answers. They, I, why haven't they been there? I, I couldn't personally get my hands on medical records because I wasn't the trustee of my son because you don't expect to have to be at 23 years old. So it was a very long, drawn-out court thing that we just got approval to actually uh, view the video surveillance um, ourselves after a year and a half that but we've been waiting for now a month just for the judge that has said we could view it to sign the order so we can view it but March 1st came the D8 the long-awaited DHS report and in the report was the details of what they viewed on the um, video surveillance so and talk about that Jill I mean your son was basically alone uh, for hours um, it's really quite um, eye-opening what, what took place. Yeah, it's quite eye-opening that a medical facility, because in the meantime, at 3.30 in the morning till 10.42 the next morning, we have had a shift change. So there was not just a single um, staff. It was multiple staffs on two, di two different uh, shifts, as a matter of fact, that checked on him not one time, Liz. Um, the video surveillance showed that it was um, not once that he was, they were checking 15 minute intervals that he was being checked on and he was in the day room and he was walking and he was doing all these things when it was, um, the video surveillance showed otherwise. And he had a roommate, Caleb uh, was in the bathroom for 40 minutes alone before he went to bed, which was in shot of the video surveillance. And Caleb went to bed at 6.30 in the morning and never left his room. His roommate came out of the room at 725 and complained to staff that Caleb was snoring so loudly that um, he could not sleep. So they put him on a couch in the hallway with a pillow and a blanket. And he said the snoring was so loud, even out into the hallway, that um, he asked to be put in a completely separate room. So he was in respiratory distress and they missed the obvious signs and symptoms of of that. So there was a few hours that he snored uh, extremely loud that people in the facility complained of it and they got up and went over and shut his door <laughs> without going. And, and this investigation also reveals that uh, they lied on their charts. Um, that, that was quite telling. Yeah, well. they charted every 15 minutes that they were checking on him until 7 a.m. They, for some reason, switched him to every hour without uh, medical reason why that, because typically they're 15-minute checks for um, 24 hours, but for some reason Caleb was checked 
to hourly checks when uh, in all reality he wasn't checked at all. But they they literally they they checked the fifteen minute boxes up until eight in the morning. And then it was hourly. They told the police department that they walked in there at nine thirty in the morning. He was still breathing, and he got a phone call at ten fifteen, and they still didn't go into his room. They had another client go wake Caleb up to tell him uh, he had a telephone call, and that's when he was found dead. I'll, I'll get back to uh, a bit more in the investigation in a, in a minute, but I wanted to bring up these statistics um, because it's amazing to me how, how this is so overlooked and ignored uh, by, by many in the media. But in Minnesota alone, opioid-involved uh, overdose deaths spiked nearly 50 percent uh, from 2020 to 2021 to nearly 1,000 lives lost to, to this, and deaths more than doubled uh, since 2019 alone, and there were 1,286 overdose deaths related to fentanyl in 2021. So these numbers, of course, are all correlate. Um, it's no secret to the pandemic. And you yourself said the government was basically paying for Caleb's addiction uh, with stimulus money. Yeah, when um, Caleb's last year of life, uh, he basically, maybe even the year and a half, he had uh, unemployment. Um, he drew unemployment for a year and a half, and in that time, I believe there was three different stimulus packages that he, he received. It was just an endless amount of money to support his habit. And I know that is a big complaint with a lot of mothers that had children or adults that struggled. This was a big problem. This was feeding many addictions um, for a long time. I mean, for a long time, year and a half, you know, Caleb drew unemployment. And back to Zumbro Valley, too. I know you found out a bit about uh, that facility's history. Yeah, they had a regular licensing um, check in May of 20, uh, the previous year before Caleb passed, and DHS themselves wrote them up for 11 citations. And three of them were repeat citations, and it had to do with their policies and their procedure and their training of their staff. And now... DHS probably should have had their eyes on the facility to begin with, but my problem, Liz, is it took them so long to go in there even after this happened that they gave Zumbro Valley um, Detox Center, which I think is the crisis receiving unit, is the politically correct way to put it, uh, a $2,000 fine for not checking on Caleb and a $200 fine for lying in their charts. So that's it in the end. That's that, it. That's it's, the, it was fine. just a maltreatment. They gave them two maltreatments, not severe maltreatment, not neglect. It was just don't do that again. And I also understand that you recently heard from the Olmstead County uh, Medical Examiner, and there are um, new things uh, I- in this case they're exploring. Yeah, since the release of the DHS report March 1st, a lot has has been changing, um, which is um, the fact that Caleb's death report is written all on the whole death summary is a summarized version of what the medical examiner was told by the facility, which we checked on him at 9.30. He was sound asleep. And so um, they have um, told me there's a possibility they're going to re- reopen his death investigation and certainly change his death report to reflect the truth. And I, and I wanted to mention also that Alpha News did reach out to a Department of Human Services spokesperson as well as Zumbro Valley Health Center for comment. And G- DHS uh, did send us a statement um, saying in part that it recognizes the tragedy of the situation involving the loss of Caleb and expresses sincere condolences to his family and friends. While DHS licenses Zumbro Valley Health Center 
and is the lead investigative agency of alleged maltreatment occurring at that facility. State and federal laws related to data privacy in licensed substance use disorder programs limit the amount of information we can share. So we'll post more on regulations and processes uh, in the article to this story, and we have yet to hear back from the facility, but when we'll do, we'll uh, update the, the story here as well. Jill, I wanted to get into um, a plaque I know that, that someone placed at, at Caleb's grave that, that reads, uh, please help me to help other people. And I know that that's been your mission here in, in wanting to, to speak out and, and the work you've done since, but, but what is your message uh, to, to parents and what is it that you, know, you want people to know? I guess the message, um, I have a hard time with the message because, you know, I lost Caleb. I wish I had a happier ending. But to not give up the tough love and the, the things I know that I live with myself much better because I never gave up on him. And the risk of losing our loved ones is such a high um, risk. And, and so I guess I feel blessed in the sense that I know that I went to bat for him unending. And so that is something that I feel that um, has kept the little sanity I have together. So the message to parents is, I really don't know, Liz, what the answer is. And I have a hard time with that. But it's all about support. I think that uh, we are treating our folks with substance abuse disorder of 2023, like we have through the 80s, 90s and 2000s. And this is a totally different beast. And I've said to many parents that the heroin of the 90s is patty cake compared to what our loved ones are dealing with today. And I read all the constant overdosing that's happening, you know, in the cities and in Rochester and all, and all the social media comments of, you know, that's the trash taking itself out and, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's kind of one of these things where, you know, the addict knows this is how, you know, the stigma is alive and well, you know, and so just to drop the shame to be, um, I have a sport group that I started several months ago for um, people that have lost their loved one to substance abuse disorder. And we were having a heart. It's just a shameful thing for people to talk about. They feel it's a um, bad parenting issue. They feel like it's a moral issue. They feel like, and I, I just try to tell it is, it is beyond our, our, our grasp of what actually is chemically going on in the brains of these people now with the, the drugs that are on, on the market today. So, um, I think the letting them hit rock bottom and all them old things that they used to tell you to do does not pertain to our loved ones today. So um, just I I'd never give up, never lose hope. An, an important message. Well, Jill Adams, we, we certainly appreciate you uh, you speaking out on this issue. Our condolences as well. But but yes, thank you for your courage. And, um, you know, we hope you'll continue to, to go forward. Okay. Thank you, Liz. For, thank you very much for the interview. Thank you, Jill. And that will do it for this episode of Liz Collin Reports. We'll see you next time.